Gracious Lord, we do thank you for your word. And we pray now, as we come to this passage, you would open our eyes, your Holy Spirit would cause us to see Jesus as he really is. And that might strengthen our faith and encourage us in our witness. Amen. Mark chapter 4, starting at verse 35 and finishing at verse 41. That day when evening came, he, that's Jesus, said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. And there were other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still not have, have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. I don't know whether you're ever uh, a fan of sort of magic shows, you know, Paul Daniels or something like that, or David Copperfield you know, where people do these incredible tricks or illusions. It's always very fascinating to sort of think afterwards and try and work out how on earth did they do that. Now, the problem we have with things like this, this passage, is often we tend to think a bit like that. You see, when I was in Sunday school, the trouble with this kind of passage and the way it was taught, where we were sort of encouraged to come away thinking, oh, wasn't that clever? You know, a bit like a magician, a sleight of hand or something like that. Wasn't that clever? How on earth can anyone do something like that? But that is not how Mark sees this miracle. Because we've got to ask a question. The disciples' reaction is one of fear when they witness this miracle. Now, we might think, they might be thinking, oh, wasn't that good, you know. We were in a storm, we really thought our time was up. Shouldn't it be gratitude? Why, as I've given the title <laughs> to this actual passage, why does this miracle really freak out Jesus' disciples? Why is it here? One of the things I hope we're seeing is that Mark organises material in very concise ways. He's always got a point that he is making, and he's making one here, and actually it's one he's been making since the start of the book. So, how are we going to approach this? Well, I've got four points. They will start with D. Firstly, decision. Jesus makes a decision. It's been a hard day's preaching. 
and he decides to cross the lake, which we know is the, as the Sea of Galilee. Now, it's interesting, this, uh, that we note that they leave. It says that he took him along just as he was in the boat. Now, we notice if we go back a little way that he was preaching to the people on the shore from a boat. So, presumably, that's telling us something. It's telling he didn't get out of the boat. It's telling us something else as well. It's telling us this is an eyewitness account. As indeed the other little details that put here, there were also other boats with him. They're not mentioned again, but Mark is making us know that he's got this from a source close to Jesus. And it's always reckoned that Mark's gospel could almost be Peter's gospel. Mark was a travelling companion with Peter later on. And I've always thought that as Peter got older, he probably sort of said, look, I'm not going to be around so long. I can't, you know, I'm not going to be here to preach this stuff. You've got to get down some of this stuff on, you know, parchment. (laughs) So we have something where we know it's an eyewitness account. And it seems to be a sudden decision that is taken. Jesus was making a point, wasn't he? The reason he came was to teach, so why not go somewhere else to teach? Indeed, earlier on, we know that when they were looking for him, when he was, had done miracles and the crowds were looking for him, he said, no, let's go somewhere else so I can teach there. That's why I have come. So the first is a decision. Secondly, there's a dilemma, a sudden storm. It might seem surprising to us, after all, Some of the disciples are fishermen. Surely they sort of could read the weather a bit. Well, I remember some years ago, um, someone had been to uh, Israel and they'd been up to Galilee and they showed us a picture of the lake. Beautiful sunlight. Absolutely fantastic. And they said this was 20 minutes later. Part of the geology of the area is that it is below sea level the sort of area above there is mountainous and cold air hits hot air and it can change just like that. Indeed, Warren Wisby, whose uh, commentaries are always useful, when he went to Israel, he actually said to his guide when they were on the lake, he said, have you ever been caught in a storm like that? And he said, yeah, I have been. And he said, I hope I never am again. And that was in a somewhat bigger boat than they were. Because... The situation is really bad. Verse 37, it's real danger. A furious squall came up, the waves broke over the boat, and it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Really, these are experienced people. They know the lake, they've been on the lake, they're used to being on it, and they really think their time is up. This is serious. I always think that touch of Jesus sleeping, is that a hard day's preaching? I always know when <laughs> I've been preaching all day, I remember we, uh, when Gilbert was, before Gilbert was around and able to do the evening some of the time, or most of the time at the moment, uh, a day's preaching, especially if I'd been over to Launton in those days, three sermons, I was pretty much out of it at the end of the day. (laughs) Oh, Jesus is tired. There's a lovely touch of his humanity there, isn't there? 
fantastic little touch. But one thing I want to draw from this is that sometimes hard times come to people. And it's not necessarily because they are disobedient in their walk with God. The disciples were doing what Jesus had asked here when they ran into this trial, as it were. And that is something we have to understand. Tough times come and they shape us as Christians. Or they can shape us if we realise that. One of the things I've always been aware of is that we live in a damaged and broken world and Christians are not immune to being caught in the crossbar. I've seen enough of that in my own experience and I've seen it in the lives of others. Indeed, I remember talking to Wallace Ben, who some of you know, he came here, Bishop Wallace, some years ago and uh, did a weekend with us, which was was great fun. Um, But he said the most poignant blessing, he said there is blessing in good times. He said the most poignant blessing, the blessing I've learnt the most from, has been when it's been the tough times. That is often the case. Well, the disciples are desperate. This must be a really bad storm, mustn't it? So we see the decision, we see the dilemma. Now we get the demonstration. Jesus rebukes the storm. Rather interestingly, uh, the phrase he uses when it says, be quiet, be still... We've seen it elsewhere in Mark before. And that was actually in the synagogue when he healed the demonic. And the demonic shouted out, you are the Holy One of God. And he said, be be quiet. It literally means be muzzled. He uses the same Greek expression here. It's the same in the, the expression here. It's literally, can it stop it? Instantly. That's the key thing, isn't it? It's instant. He commands. And he shows his authority over nature. We've been seeing acts of authority. This is what I mean by Mark being a good teacher. He has constantly been bringing up in these early chapters the authority of Jesus, the authority over people. He calls the disciples, they come. His authority over evil spirits. He casts out demons. They can't do anything. They have to shut up when he tells them to be quiet. They have no, they have no leeway, no resistance they can put up to him. His authority to forgive sins. Something that really gets people, because only, only God can do that, and they know that. We've seen authority time and time again. And now we see authority over the elements, over nature. Now after rebuking the storm, and we notice that the storm ceases. Notice the second part of verse 39. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. It wasn't a bit calmer. It was completely calm. Mark's making the point, storms slowly die out. 
They don't stop like that. Jesus turns his attention to the disciples. Verse 40, he said to the disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? You see, Jesus can be trusted. One of the things I think is quite interesting, not just the fact that it shows the humanity of Christ, but it shows Jesus' complete trust in God, his Father. In Psalm 3, verse 5, we actually read, didn't we? I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. That was the kind of faith that Jesus was asking his disciples to have. That's what he was looking for from them. But their reaction is quite extraordinary. We get a declaration. But it's not the one we expect, is it? It's not, thank you, Jesus, that was really good. Gosh, I thought we were in, you know, we were coming close to sort of buying the proverbial farm there. It's not that at all. It's one of fear. They were terrified. Why? Surely they were more terrified when the storm was about them. Mark seems to infer that this has made them more terrified. Why is this? I'll tell you why it is. They knew their Bibles. They knew who controlled the weather. They knew that when Elijah had prayed and had called out to God and said, God, remember your covenant promises. Remember if you said your people were unfaithful, you would send drought that there was a drought, that the Lord judged Israel. And the drought was only raised later when Elijah prayed again. They knew that bit of history, as it were. And they also knew of other psalms, other than the ones we looked at. Listen to this. This is Psalm 65. And verses 5 to 7. You answer us with awesome deeds of righteousness, O God our Saviour, the hope of all the ends of the earth and the farthest seas. Who formed the mountains by your power, having armed yourself with strength? Who stilled the roaring seas, the roaring of their waves, and the turmoil of the nations? There's others, but this one is particularly poignant. Psalm 89 and verse 9. You rule over the surging seas. When its waves mount up, you still them. See, the disciples were suddenly realizing Jesus was not just a gifted teacher. Their fear was that they were in the presence of the divine. And if you look in the Old Testament, 
to the reaction of a prophet, any prophet who found themselves in the presence of the divine, they were generally terrified. When they realised they were in the presence of the divine, because they realised, didn't they? They'd, again, they, they were good believers. They knew their, their, their Old Testament, the books of Moses, as it were. They knew that uh, Moses, when he asked to see God, God said, well, you can't see my face because no one can see my face and live. They knew what it was, so were they terrified. The disciples are terrified because things are starting to add up. Jesus is not just a clever teacher. He's not gifted. He's not that he's gifted. And he says things, he did do that, but that's not it. He's not just someone who can do miracles, a bit like a magician. They realise they're in the presence of the divine. One of the great issues, I think, in the church today is that we do not have this sense of reverent fear. I came across a chorus once, which made my blood run cold. And uh, I remember Steve Dunn, who some of you know here, we were discussing it and we felt it was irreverent because it had this chorus and we were always I've always had a thing about children's talks and things like that you've got to teach don't don't be sloppy with your theology because if you're sloppy then they're going to carry us on as they get older but it was this it had a chorus this 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 song this children's song our god is big our god is great our god is fab and he's my mate I had a problem with that. Teetotalers, I apologise in advance. A mate is someone you go down the pub with. You go to a football match with. It's not the Lord God Almighty. We decrease God's majesty. We decrease his authority unknowingly. We don't have the confidence in him. Because he's not a big God. That's the first part of that uh, chorus. I have no problem with Our God is big. Our God is great. Then it kind of ruins it. Doesn't it? His sovereign Lord. And this is what the disciples are realizing. This is someone who is sovereign. This is someone who has authority over illness, over the demonic, the supernatural, over people and over sin, and can forgive sin, and now he's got it over nature, and they know only God can do that. And that raises a question, how big is your God? Because what I see when I look at this, and what the disciples saw, and it terrified them, because they were in the presence of him, they saw a great and powerful God. The temptation is always to lose sight of that. You should never do that, whatever our size of church. When I was in my first church, the church grew substantially. That's wonderful in many ways. But I always got, again, felt uneasy when one of my deacons said to me, well, we must be doing something right. Because that sounds like it's about us. And not the 
God in his goodness and grace despite our fumbling and hopeless efforts. If any good comes out of the door knocking yesterday, it won't be because you've got a brilliant pastor who's got the gift of the gab on the door. It would be because God melts people's hearts. We exist as Christians and we exist as you know, a church, because God in his goodness has been good to us. And we're always to remember that. What size is your God? Because I see so many who believe in a God that could never save from sin, could never pay the price for sin, and that's not the God of the Bible. There's so much we see today of a God who tolerates sin. I don't see that. Disciples were genuinely afraid because they realised who Jesus was and was always starting to realise it. What a difference it will make to us if we put our trust in a God like the one we have here. Salvation can only be found in the Lord God. That was what we read in Acts chapter 4, 12, where Peter says, salvation is found in no one else because there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. And there's a little challenge for us, isn't there? When we come before such a God, what are we going to do? Going to have demands? No, we can't ask him to see it our way. We need to do what the psalmist says in that verse I opened up the service with. Psalm 46 and verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. Are we going to be still? Are we going to accept God on his terms, not ours? Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we firstly ask forgiveness for the times when perhaps we've looked at miracles and just thought they were very clever. Where Mark is really stressing to us that the disciples realised they were in the presence of the divine. And they feared that. Lord, we pray that we have some of that reverent fear, but again, we pray that it shows we have a God who can deliver. That through the cross, Jesus has delivered our salvation, and that's not because of who we are. It's because of your grace and mercy towards us. So, Lord, we pray we live in the light of that. If we don't know that, we come literally on bended knee and confess our sin and know that we can be forgiven. And if we do know that now, we might live in the light of it and witness to the saving power that is found in Jesus Christ. Amen.